0: Our summer series on the prophets continues this morning as we meet the prophet Samuel. We might think the easiest place to find prophets in the Old Testament is in the books that bear their names, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those 12 minor prophets. But we find prophets throughout the Old Testament as we discovered last week in Exodus when we met Miriam. And today we'll meet Samuel in the books of Samuel, Samuel and kings are known as the former prophets, because of just how many prophetic folks that we encounter in those texts. So there's nowhere you can go in the Old Testament to escape these prophetic folk. I invite you once again to listen now for the Word of God as it comes to us from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1-13. through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. So the Lord said, Samuel said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And Samuel sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought David in. Now David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. The prophet Samuel finds himself between a rock and a hard place at the beginning of our passage this morning. The king who he's commissioned to serve, King Saul, has fallen out of God's favor. Meanwhile, God tells Samuel to go and anoint a new king from among the sons of a certain Jesse of Bethlehem. And so Samuel's torn between obeying the God for whom he prophesies and committing treason by betraying King Saul. So Samuel complains about his dilemma to God, who throws him a bone and says, "'Take a heifer with you and act like you're going to Bethlehem to offer me a sacrifice.'" That'll pull the wool over Saul's eyes. So Samuel heads to Bethlehem under the guise of official worship business, and the the city elders greet him, and he assures them he's just here to offer a sacrifice. And then he finds Jesse and his sons and asks them to join him for this alleged offering. As they gather, Samuel glances at Jesse's sons and seems to want to get this anointing over with as quickly as possible without drawing too much attention to what's going on and Eliab catches his eye first for he's a tall and impressive son of Jesse and Samuel thinks ah here's a guy that looks like a king in the making he's impressive looking but God pumps the brakes and utters one of the most compelling lines I think in all of Scripture God says don't look at his stature Humans look at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Samuel must have been a little flustered by this declaration. This is how we've always done it, he must have thought. This is how we've always selected kings. Who is the tallest, the biggest, the strongest? Who is the best warrior who can command the most admiration and respect? Who exudes the most strength and confidence? That's Eliab. These are the questions we've always used to select kings. But in this case, God is looking for something new. God is looking with a different set of criteria. God is challenging the way that human beings so easily are seduced by facades, by impressive looking outward appearances. God wants to get at the heart of things. So Samuel gives it another shot. Abinadab is next, and he passes before Samuel so the prophet can look him over. The language of the text is really interesting here, I think, because despite what God has just told Samuel, Abinadab just passes by, as though to undergo the same assessment as Eliab, as though he were a model in some beauty pageant. It seems like Samuel is still stuck on this outward appearance thing and so once again god says nope that's not the one and then the same thing happens with shema and again he's not the one and on and on this goes through seven iterations but samuel is still without a new king to anoint god has yet to give the go ahead god if samuel thought he could rush what was surely intended to be a discernment process. He was certainly mistaken. Samuel doesn't seem to want to uh, approach this anointing too deliberatively, does he? If he's paranoid about Saul breathing down his neck, I suppose we can sympathize with his desire to move quickly. But the problem is that whenever we try to bypass the careful discernment of God's will, Whenever we sh- we settle for a shallow, outward assessment of things, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. You really can't serve God and be in a hurry because serving God requires working with people and people take time to work with. People take time to get to know. We can make a quick outward assessment of people But if you want to see into someone's heart, as the Lord does, it's going to take some time. You can't rush the process of discerning God's will within community. This is why faith formation sometimes flies in the face of the ways in which we are otherwise socialized to relate to the world. First impressions studies have shown are a major driver of human behavior. We rely on first impressions and outward assessments because they're fast and efficient. Our brains are bombarded with so much information that we rely on mental paradigms to quickly sort and assess our surroundings. And this is usually wonderfully helpful when it comes to assessing inanimate objects, right? If an apple on your counter is shriveled up, no need to cut it open, it's surely rotten to the core you can just toss it aside and look for another apple. But when we apply this thinking to human beings, we get into trouble. Because while we are looking at outward appearances, God is searching the heart. The old adage, don't judge a book by its cover, could easily be recast in our passage today to say, don't judge a monarch by their stature, right? Eliab, and Abinadab, and Shammah all fail the heart test. Seven of Jesse's sons do. And so Samuel says, is that everyone? And Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. Ouch. When Jesse refers to David as the youngest, He's not just referring to the birth order of his sons. This is a pejorative term in Hebrew. It implies inferiority. It means to be negligible or to be weak. Jesse is saying, well, there's David, but he's the runt of the litter. He wasn't even worth bringing before you today. Jesse doesn't even want to give David a shot because David doesn't seem like a king at all, but Samuel insists, and David arrives, and upon arrival, the Lord says, this is the one, anoint him, and the spirit of the Lord comes upon David with power, and the rest is history. You know, it's so typical of God, to make divine strength manifest in human weakness. This scriptural theme is consistent, that God rejects outwardly impressive things in favor of things that are inwardly true. No one expected David to be the next king, not the prophet Samuel with his access to divine wisdom, not Papa Jesse with his fatherly familiarity about David, Not brother Eliab, who towered over his ruddy, younger sibling. No one knew that David was to be the next king except the Lord, who does not see as the human eye sees, but who looks at the heart. You know, just like humans, churches have an outward appearance too, but also a heart that requires time and effort to see. Just like humans, a church's heart consists of its core values, its priorities, and its sense of purpose. And when it comes to discerning how to be faithful disciples in the community of a church, that congregation must be more concerned with what lies at the heart of its ministry than what its outward appearance might look like. For any church to get in sync with God, it must get to the heart of things. It must peel back its facades to the place where God's Spirit searches the heart. So it's worth asking ourselves, as we take a look at Riverside, what lies at the heart of our ministries and our mission? What do we care about most? What do we prioritize most? Where do those priorities lie? It's an important question for us to ask because outwardly, Riverside is an Eliab kind of church, right? It's fair to say that we look very impressive and it's not bragging to say so. I mean, just look around. Look at these beautiful stained glass windows. This is the best organ around. Michael keeps our grounds looking absolutely beautiful. Riverside looks like a church fit for a king, right? and rightfully so. All of these things are wonderful blessings that reflect the commitment of our members and staff to excellence for over a century now. Our heritage is something that we should be proud of, and it's placed us in a wonderful position from which to proceed into our next century of ministry. But though impressive from the outside, these things must not be our beating heart. We cannot rest on our laurels. We cannot bury our inherited treasure in the ground for fear of losing our investment. We must continue to look ahead to see what God has in mind for us next and to anoint those things that God has for us next with our commitment to discipleship. You know, all throughout the United States, Churches are entering into a new season of ministry, by necessity or by choice, because gone are the days when looking impressive is enough to attract new members. And the same is true for us. We may have the best programs for families. We may offer endless, meaningful volunteer opportunities. We may gather each week for powerful, engaging worship. But the truth is that most people are not going to come looking for those things, even if we have them. These days, people who aren't already in a church are not usually actively looking for one. No church can wait around looking impressive or even being impressive until people fill our sanctuaries and bring our programs to capacity. The time has come for the church to first meet people outside our impressive doors in the world, in in our city, in our community. This means that all of our ministries must galvanize around and be founded upon relationships. Church growth today emerges through individual connections forged through local partnerships, community engagement and your simple friendships. Relationships rely at the heart of today's fruitful ministries in our cultural climate. But this sort of relationship-based ministry can be nebulous and anything but straightforward because as soon as we step outside our doors, we are confronted with a huge range of opportunities to engage with our neighbors. So much is happening around here. New possibilities are endless, and we may not have any clue where to start. But here at Riverside, we could not ask to be any better situated to be a church in 21st century America. Samuel's problem was that he was looking for the same old kind of king when God was going in a new direction. God called for David to be king, not because of how impressive David looked, but because his heart was aligned with God's priorities for his time. And in the same way, today's post-Christendom and mid-to-post-pandemic churches cannot go looking for the same old kinds of programs when God is taking us in a new, more outward, more missional sort of direction— It's not that everything must change. The gospel is still the same good news for all the world. And our goal is still the same to build an increasingly passionate, growing community that worships together and grows in faith and discipleship. It's not that everything must change, but the starting point for our ministries is increasingly outside the walls of the church, more than it needed to be in decades past. Missional church models are difficult because relationship building is difficult, right? It's complicated. It can get tricky. Not everyone will want to join our church or even to partner with us on shared priorities. Sometimes we may get burned, taken advantage of. Sometimes we may misspeak and put our foot in our mouth. All sorts of these kinds of challenges arise when we truly invest in being a meaningful presence among our neighbors. It means that we're often in a position of having to learn that we might not always be the experts. It means we have to be willing to be uncomfortable sometimes. It means we have to risk loving as recklessly as Jesus Christ did. Poor Samuel had to try again and again to find the place where God's Spirit was moving, but so also we must be willing to try again and again to discern where and to whom God's Spirit is leading us. Is it a tall order? Yes, but is this an incredibly exciting time to be the church as well? You bet it is. But as Samuel learned, we cannot rush through this task before us. We'll have to be deliberative and really listen for God's voice in Scripture and in prayer. We will have to search for inspiration in unexpected places, in persons that might seem dispensable, in society's hidden figures. We'll have to see power differently than the world around us sees it. And we'll have to be willing to put our money where our mouth is And truly invest in the priorities that we identify, because it was Jesus who said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God looks at the heart. Thankfully, this is not a task that rests on any one of our shoulders. In fact, it is a task in which all of us must engage and participate. Each one of you is indispensable for this kind of missional ministry to bear fruit. Just consider how many relationships and connections are represented in this room today among all of you. Thousands upon thousands, I'm sure. And it's these relationships and connections that will be the means by which our church grows in faith, hope, and love. And friends, we're well-positioned for this sort of ministry. Because as we've seen, God's Spirit comes mightily upon those whom God chooses. And I'm convinced that God has chosen Riverside to convey the light and love of Jesus Christ in this neighborhood in which we're rooted. God will equip us for the task at hand. God will anoint us for the task at hand. So let's be willing to follow where God's spirit leads. King David was an unexpected selection for the throne, as we've seen. He seemed weak and disposable, young and unimportant, but God saw what the human eye failed to see, and that was a heart that was aligned with God's priorities. And so, despite his flaws, David would be remembered as a king after God's own heart. So may we too become increasingly known as a church after God's own heart. And with relationships and hospitality as our core priorities, may we courageously discern God's calling and claim upon us and step boldly into our next chapter of ministry. May it be so. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.